Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what's making news this week. There are serious doubts over the participation of the Anderson Motorsport Bathurst 1000 wildcard after it was revealed that Michael Anderson won't be granted a super license by Motorsport Australia. It's an impossibly messy situation right now that we'll do our best to unpack in the pod. James Golding will drive for Premier Racing for the remainder of the 2022 Supercars season. He's now been officially confirmed as Gary Jacobson's replacement in the Subway car, which means Team 18 will need a new co-driver to share with Scott Pye for the Bathurst 1000. While one wildcard is potentially out, another is definitely in, with confirmation that Matt Charter Motorsport will run a one-off Bathurst 1000 campaign. The Super 2 team has leased a Walkinshaw and Dreddy United Commodore for what will be a long-awaited main game debut for Charter. He was set to race for LD Motorsport in the main game full-time back in 2017, only for Motorsport Australia to refuse him a super license dispensation. And boy, isn't that the topic of the day. It's yet to be confirmed who he will share the Bathurst 1000 wildcard with this October, but the team has scored a technical coup by hiring renowned engineer Wally Story as team manager. Speaking of the Bathurst 1000, the Seaton name will return to the grid this year. Matt Stone Racing has signed its Super 2 ace Aaron Seaton to partner Jack LeBrock. He'll be the third generation of Seaton to take part in the great race following 1965 winner Bo and Aaron's father Glenn, who famously never won the Bathurst 1000. Supercars has expanded the eligibility for Super 2 ahead of the 2023 season. The second tier will be open to all Car of the Future cars, including the current spec Mustang and ZB Commodore. And Shane Van Gisbergen notched up another rally win over the weekend at the Supercars points leader, took victory in the Far North Rally in New Zealand. His winning margin was more than two minutes, and he was driving the Skoda that he will campaign at Rally New Zealand later this year. Joining me this week to discuss all that and more is a teammate that I'd fast track to a super license straight away, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, what a morning it's been at Castro Motorsport News HQ. What an absolute roller coaster of a day, Andrew. I felt like I needed a uh, seatbelt on my office chair. It was uh, it was a bumpy one. Are we going to dive straight into this uh, Michael Anderson wild, uh, super license wildcard saga? Yes, I think we're going to crack straight into that one, Steph, and we've been frantically uncovering the details of this drama with the Anderson Motorsport entry, a little peek behind the curtain. This isn't the first time we've recorded this part of the podcast today, so let's have another crack at it. So to the first point, uh, Anderson Motorsport applied for a super license and was either granted one or granted one provisionally by by Motorsport Australia. Both parties are telling different stories about that one. Right now, either way, Motorsport Australia has since revoked whatever approval had been given based on what it claims is incorrect information in the application. And that's their words, not mine. So what is that incorrect information? Well, here it gets even messier. Earlier this year, Motorsport Australia dropped the requirement for a driver with enough points 
to need to have competed in either three supercars rounds in five years or six supercar rounds in three years previous and finish in the top six or top eight, depending on how many Super license holders there are in the Super 2 field in Super 2 the previous year. Now, there are still traces of those rules around paperwork in the Motorsport Australia system. So that certainly makes things a little messier. But Motorsport Australia tells me they definitely dropped those requirements. It was just about the points. You get the points, you can have a super license. But then the can gets kicked down the road to supercars who can make the final decision about who races in their series. And it appears that um, supercars hasn't dropped that requirement. They still require drivers uh, to have satisfied those Super 2 requirements. That's what it says in the 2022 operations manual right now. Um, and it could be – it seems that that issue is what's been kicked back to Motorsport Australia to say, hey, we're not satisfied with this Super Licence application. Perhaps there was some confusion over the combined Super 2, Super 3 grid. Um, I don't know for sure, but that's certainly a plausible theory that is getting punted around – at the moment, but either way, um, Michael Anderson doesn't have a super license, and based on the current sort of feeling that's coming out of Motorsport Australia HQ, he ain't about to get one. So it's a hugely messy situation. It seems unlikely that the wild card will go ahead with Anderson as a driver. That's not to say it won't happen, but he might need to find two drivers uh, to come in and do it instead of just one as a co-driver. Now, onto the other aspect of this, which is approval from supercars. Um, during the announcement, there was a lot of talk about you know support from Dick Johnson Racing for this Dick Johnson Racing Mustang, a huge international name as a co-driver. And on those conditions, uh, supercars was seemingly um, happy for this wildcard to go ahead. But at least publicly, the momentum has definitely slowed down. It appears supercars may have got some cold feet here. Um, supercars isn't commenting on the matter right now, but there is a sense that the series isn't entirely on board with this whole thing and that, like with the licence, the approval was conditional on conditions that aren't necessarily being met right now. I think I've covered it all off, Stefan. Please feel free to fill in any gaps that I've missed because there's been a lot of this stuff rolling around in my head this morning. But anyway, what, what do you make of this entire mess? I'm regretting the fact that I didn't bring a lawyer to this recording because there was a lot of uh, a lot of paperwork there, a lot of detail to sift through. Mm -hmm. It's very confusing, but it definitely made more sense as bits of the uh, sort of uh, bits of it unraveled through the day. Yeah. Um, so it probably wasn't helped by some of the the communication on it and the way it came out. But um, yeah, the fact that he's got those super license points, um, you would have thought that would be enough. And it sort of adds insult to injury that like he needed to have done six Super 2 rounds and he's done six Super 3 rounds and they're on the same grid. They're competing in the yeah. same races in yeah. pretty similar cars, but one means you're competent and able to compete in the Bathurst 1000 and the other means you are not. So I think the bottom line here is there's no winners out of this, including the fans who just want to see more cars in the race. So um, yeah, it, it just shouldn't be this hard, should it? I'm just I'm not going to go on another another tear on the super license system. I don't like it. I've never liked it, um, and I think we just end up in these situations. And what sort of uh, like to me, the worrying thing is supercars saying, "Well, you have to do this. You have to do super two. That that has to be part of the requirement." Because I don't believe that should be part of the requirement to um, to race a supercar. It should be about whether you can safely drive one of these cars or not. And having raced in Super 2 doesn't necessarily mean that that you are or you aren't or whatever. It's it's just – it's silly and wherever it's coming from, wherever the rules still lie, it just – it absolutely just shouldn't be there. We should just 
have observed license test. Yes, you can drive a car. No, you can't. Done. Anyway, I've been through all that before. It is uh, it is hard to escape the feeling that um, a dispensation might have been on the table uh, had he had full DJR support and an international big-name co-driver locked in. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, you sort of alluded to it earlier, but that's an interesting part of the mix as well. It, it definitely is. And that, that that's a whole other conversation about whether we should be making these decisions based on who the co-driver is. Surely if there's a crew there, um, they've got the car, they've invested in the car, it doesn't matter. As long as Motorsport Australia can sign off on the drivers to, get a, to have a super license, it shouldn't matter whether it's the biggest name in the world or some kid from Super 2 or Super 3 or whatever. You know, this is all meant to be about safety, remember. That's what it's meant to be about. And it doesn't feel like it's about that at all at the moment. So, yeah, just just a stupidly messy situation. Um, it's, yeah, and it's a shame because we should be talking about the fact we've got 29 cars on the grid for the Bathurst 1000, which is absolutely awesome. But that's not what we're talking about. Right, let's dig into some more local news this week. We finally, officially, know who is taking over the vacant Premier seat. James Golding will return to a full-time ride in place of Gary Jacobson for the first time since Gary Rogers Motorsport pulled out of supercars at the end of the 2019 season. Uh, Stefan, we sort of weighed up the merits of full-time versus enduro seat last week. Has Jimmy G made the right call here? Yeah, absolutely. For someone in his situation, it's just important to to find a way back in it's it's very hard once you get left out for a season to get another full-time chance so it's come in unusual circumstances and probably being mid-season there's pretty low expectations on it so um yeah it's it's one of those ones it's good to see him get another shot because i don't really think we saw the uh the best out of him or the most out of him in his previous time with Gary Rogers Motorsport when you look back he, he sort of had his breakout super 2 season in 2016 then didn't have a super 2 drive in 17 when he probably would have really contended for that title and then he had two main game seasons with GRM in 18 and 19 and the latter of those was GRM clearly wasn't in its full strength supercars form when it was uh, busy putting together S5000s and TCR cars and not really developing those ZBs before it shut its supercars team. So, um, yeah, he's, he was a really strong co-driver for Team 18, but um, there's only so much you can do to impress when you're doing one race a year. So uh, it's great to see him get another chance. Yeah, he definitely had to take that opportunity. He's made no secret about wanting to get back in a full-time ride. And when you've been out for two and a half seasons, you're definitely at the point where it may not happen. So the fact that this opportunity has come along and he has grabbed it is uh, very good news for him. Uh, let's have a bit of a chat about Aaron Seaton at MSR alongside Jack LeBrock for the Bathurst 1000. Um, no huge surprise there given his involvement in MSR's Super 2 program. Stefan, I'm fascinated to see how Aaron goes because I don't know if I've ever got a read on exactly where he sits in terms of sort of outright ability, and I'm not saying he's no good. That's not what I mean at all. What I mean is that Super 2 is very car dependent. It's not always clear. It's not always a clear read on, on where someone is at, and I'm looking forward to sort of having that co-driver feel to, to find out where he does kind of sit. Yeah, you're right in that Super 2 is a bit murky because it's so car dependent and, and team dependent as well. Um, and he's yeah he's in his second season there, so he's clearly got more to learn and and plenty to prove. But I think he's shown uh, a fair bit of promise in that category. And when you look at the other things he 
he has done. They haven't been able to afford to do all the feeder categories you might like, the ones that um, get the most attention. But um, he was immense in Trans Am. Not only his his raw speed, but his race craft in that category as well was very impressive. So you look at what he's done there, and then the fact that he's got plenty of laps around Bathurst. You know, a couple of um, Bathurst twelve hour drives. And uh, he was on the podium there in Super Two last year, so I think he's got um, he's got a body of work behind him that prepares him fairly well to be a, a good co-driver for Jack LeBrock. Well, we're off to Townsville this weekend for the seventh round of the Supercars season. Stefan, it hasn't really felt like we've had a, a title fight all year, but that little wobble from Giz in Darwin, I don't know. It feels like maybe just maybe the door is ajar. A little bit. Am I being too optimistic here? I mean, Triple Eight do go so well in Townsville. Do you think Giz is just going to hit straight back and reinstate his massive margin over the field? Or maybe, maybe like another bad round, could we see a little bit of fireworks in terms of the the, the series points? Yeah, I mean, like for, uh, for us and any sort of neutral fans and observers, like uh, we really want to see a title fight. Um and Darwin did sort of dare us all to, to dream that we might get one this year. Not only with Shane's um, slip there in race three that really crushed the points margin back, like 281 back to 212 um, was a fair shrinking of the margin. But the fact that at DJR car, Tickford and Walkinshaws, they all won races at Hidden Valley, it really made us feel like uh, it's game on for this season. But as you mentioned, like Triple Eight are just immense in Townsville. Their record there is very, very good. So it wouldn't be a surprise to see uh, Shane really uh, slam that door shut on all of our fingers uh, this weekend. And then you look at the other side of the the fence there and DJR are going to be without Ludo Lacroix, who's uh, gone back home to France to to visit family, which um, he wasn't able to do during that uh, COVID period. So they'll be without him for a weekend, which they didn't have uh, Will Davison's race engineer, Richard Harris, in Darwin and still... That car did a really good job, but Ludo is the the big dog there technically, so um, it'll be definitely uh, interesting to see if that affects the performance. Yeah, particularly on a on a weekend where we've got you know those that random element of the two sets of super softs, one for each race, which a bit of strategic creativity could be pretty handy. Uh, Townsville does mark the midway point of the season, so I thought we should revisit our preseason predictions and just see how things are tracking. Now, we both had uh, Shane Van Gisbergen in P1, so we've nailed that so far, Stefan. Um, but from there on, I've got to be honest, it's all you. You had Anton in P2, Brody in P8, and Slady in P10, although on current form, I'm not sure that one's going to hold out to the end of the season for you unless they find some answers at the Blanchard Racing Team pretty quickly. I think he's going to slip out of that 10th position reasonably soon. Um, we both had Davo outside the top five, but he's firmly in there. He's fourth in the points, but in a lot of ways leading the way for DJR on hard outright pace. He's definitely outperforming our predictions. We didn't have David Reynolds or Andre Heimgartner in our 10s. Uh, on my longer list, which we didn't pub- publish, so this this could be seen as um, as fantastic hindsight, but I found the old list. I, I had them in, I think, 11th and 12th, so had them close there, but not actually in it. Um, behind... Giz, who's been the standout for you this season so far? Yeah, I think if I had to highlight one team, it'd, it'd definitely be Grove Racing. We've talked plenty about um, their lift in performance this year being greater than than we expected and, you know, the importance of David Couchy in that mix and some more investment from the Groves. But it's worth just taking a step back and really thinking like um, sort of 
late last year, November-ish, when uh, David Reynolds was was sidelined, obviously, with that uh, vaccination saga. And even at the same time, like Lee Holdsworth wasn't on the grid either for very different reasons, of course. He'd, uh, he lost his right at the end of 2020. So to see those two guys running at the front and they've both been on the podium this year, what a uh, what an amazing turnaround. Yeah, I, I agree. Grove Racing has been the big surprise for me. Um, not that they are improving, Based on the investment from the Groves, you'd expect that, but the speed in which their development has taken place and turned into real-world car speed um, is absolutely uh, staggering. I'd like to point out Andre Heimgartner as well because you know he left that team, and as the Groves started to sort of show some promise, it was easy to go, oh, that might not have been a very good idea, but he's doing his best to make sure it, it, it wasn't it was a sideways step rather than a backward step and he's performing really well and kind of fairly consistently now to the point where it doesn't look like they've lucked into a setup somewhere. It looks like they've actually found some direction with the car that's working consistently at different uh, at different circuits. So and, and, you know, they generally go pretty well in Townsville, BJ or Nick Perkett did there. So um, it would be interesting to see how if they can keep that going this weekend. We had a few shockers in our top ten um, predictions as well. We both went pretty big on Nick Perkett. I had him fourth and you had him fifth. Um, I feel like we might have got that a bit wrong. It's been a tough start to life as a Walkinshaw driver for Nick, particularly in recent rounds. Um, that's probably my disappointment of the season so far. It's not necessarily Nick's fault. There's clearly something difficult to drive about that car and it's something that Chaz and Adam DeBore have learned to compensate for, and that's not a point that Nick is quite at right now. Um, he has gone well in Townsville before. It is the sort of track you can outperform the car on um, if you can hustle it a little bit. So he'll be one to watch this weekend, I think. Um, who's been your disappointment of the season so far? Yeah, I mean, the, Nick Perkett definitely comes to mind, but I think um, I'd broaden it to say Walkinshaw Andretti United because even though Chaz Mostert has won four races, he's delivered some great highlights. Um, they've really failed to deliver on what looked like the promise of being a consistent threat, which is uh, something they've failed to do for a long time. They've just been as wildly inconsistent as ever. And Chaz is sitting down in, in P6 in the points. Um, so that element and the fact they've not been able to integrate Percat in there smoothly. They've already had a bit of an engineering reshuffle to try to uh, right the ship. It's just uh, not quite the uh, refined package we expected from those guys this year. And uh, I'd, pr- I'd probably add um, seeing Will Brown that low in the standings yeah. uh, for Erebus Motorsport after the, the back end of 2021 that they put together. Um, clearly, they won't be very happy with how that's gone either. So they, they probably deserve a, a clip in that as well. Alrighty, let's move on to the Super 2 news of the week. So just to clarify what's happening here with this eligibility stuff, the news isn't actually that the Mustang and the ZB will filter down to Super 2. We've known that since uh, last year that was going to happen. Um, The news is actually that the car of the future cars currently eligible for Super 2 will continue to be eligible for Super 2 rather than push back to Super 3 or whatever. And Super 3 will continue to be the project blueprint cars. So basically nothing will change except for those cars filtering Back. Now, it's going to be tough to be competitive in anything but a Mustang or a ZB, uh, and and there are current cars already being sold to Super 2 competitors, but you know the idea is that Super 2 drivers won't be forced into an upgrade just to continue taking part in the series. That's, that's the driving force behind this change. Um, Stefan, is this a good move, do you think? 
Oh, I think the best scenario for Super 2 as a category would have been to to wait another year before having the Gen 2 cars come down. But, yeah, as you suggest, they, they were always going to come in because the main game teams uh, want to uh, sell down their cars, the ones that haven't been snapped up by collectors already. So, um, yeah, supercars were kind of in a position where if they – if they moved the uh, current Super 2 cars down to Super 3, then they might not have enough of those Gen 2 things buzzing around in Super 2. So they've sort of ended up with this halfway house of combining them all together. And uh, those who those who are running those, um, you know, VF Commodore, FGX Falcon, um, those cars are probably going to have a pretty difficult time because they won't... They won't apply any aero parity uh, testing across all the cars. It's just run them as they've been homologated. And even though the um, the baseline for all of those aero-wise was meant to be the same, it was pretty clear that um, things got out of control with Gen 2 in terms of downforce. So, Indeed. yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be pretty tough for them. Let's take a look at what's been happening around the world now. Carlos Sainz won a thrilling British Grand Prix uh, from Sergio Perez and Lewis Hamilton. Max Verstappen finished seventh after picking up early damage, and Daniel Ricciardo was just 13th. Sticking with Silverstone, Jack Doohan picked up a maiden Formula 2 win in the sprint race. Scott McLaughlin is now a two-time IndyCar race winner. The Kiwi held off Alex Pillow to take victory at Mid-Ohio. Aussie Willpower went from 21st on the grid and an opening lap spin to finish third in a remarkable recovery. And Tyler Reddick took his first NASCAR Cup Series win at Road America after beating Chase Elliott. Stefan, that was one wild British Grand Prix. I mean, that first lap crash from Joe Guanyu was absolutely incredible. He says the halo saved him, and given the way the roll hoop was ground away to nothing, it's hard to argue with that. We saw the halo probably save Roy Nassani's life in the Formula 2 race earlier in the day. I mean, this thing was so controversial when it came in. It was criticised for how it looked and for destroying the DNA of open-wheel racing. And, you know, I, I certainly... I had I, I was critical of it as well because you know I love open wheel racing and I wasn't sure if it was the right fit, but geez, you just wouldn't want to be without it anymore, right? Oh, absolutely, and I think a lot of the safety enhancements that have come in over the years, even thinking of the Hans device, like there were some drivers pretty against that when it when it came in. Yep. Um, but over time, these things proved their worth, and the halo was particularly a big one because how much it changed the aesthetic of the cars but now it's it's scary to look at a f1 car from enough years ago where it didn't have a halo yep. um when when you think about some of the scenes we've seen over the last uh little bit including the weekend and and when you look at that uh that alpha like the way that main roll hoop um was ground down was was pretty scary like you'd think the fia would be uh, reviewing that pretty closely yeah absolutely the crash itself could have actually been a um been a lifesaver really because there were protesters literally sitting on the track later in the lap on that opening lap like just equally wild wild stuff i had to think what would have happened there if the race had stayed green i mean there's no cause good enough to offset that level there's no cause noble enough whatever to offset that level of absolute just recklessness and you know endangering human life that was just yeah incredible yeah, it's, it's a real contrast when you think of uh, the uh, the brains that go into some of these safety innovations and uh, and how much effort is put into uh, to trying to protect people on that side and then to see uh, 
and think about the, the brains that are involved in deciding to sit on a racetrack on the opening lap of a Grand Prix. It's, uh, it was disgraceful. As for the race itself, that sort of five-strong battle for second place was Formula One at its best. And the roar from the crowd when Lewis went past Perez and Leclerc in one go at one point was just was just awesome. There was some great tension over the Ferrari radio at various points during the race as well. Now, Stefan, last year you and I disagreed on this, and you said Jamie Winkup was wrong to argue back against team orders. What did you make of, of Carlos basically telling Ferrari to shove it when they asked him to drop back on that late restart? There's just something incredibly awkward about the way Ferrari runs its races and they, the way they manage their drivers yep. in the races. Like a little bit earlier on, like Carlos was really good when they um, they told him a lap time he had to meet, and then as soon as he didn't, there was no complaints or aggro. He just he just moved it over. But um, yeah, I think Ferrari had so badly misunderstood what the pace was going to be like. Um, soft versus whatever the other tyre was, medium was it, that yeah. uh, Shao had for the run home, that, uh, yeah, he just had to make the captain's call from the car and say, like, nah, boys, this is going to be how it is. And to be honest, like, he he had to make the captain's call at Monaco as well, if you remember on the tyre strategy. Um, we should have won in the race outside of being held up on an outlap, I think, by Latifi. So, yeah, it's, it's a worry when you think about how much uh, sort of resource is at Ferrari to uh, manage these races and uh, the bloke behind the wheel is the one having to make the calls. That is a very, very good point. Hey, how about Scotty Mack over there in the States? Were you impressed to see him back in victory lane for a second time? Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, fantastic to, to see that. Like he's He obviously opened the season with a win there at St. Pete and he's had a few ups and downs. Since I think his his pace has been really great, but probably just some of the the wheel to wheel racing with other cars. Um, you know his lack of experience in that car positioning has probably caught him out a little bit. There's been some talk after the win that like he's still fighting for the title and aiming to win the championship, but it really does feel like a three year progression for him. Of of last year was about learning the series. This year is about learning how to win, and then next year will be when he really has a red hot crack at the championship. I reckon. All right, let's move on to the Castrol mailbag for this week. Stefan, Jessica Payne asks if Shane Van Gisbergen is just bad at starts or if there is an issue with the car. I kind of feel like it might be a little bit of both. There aren't many chinks in SVG's armour, but he hasn't always been known for lightning starts. But at the same time, the team clearly feels there's something wrong. Uh, Brock Feeney has been struggling a little bit too, and they worked on starts during the test at Queensland Raceway last week. What do you make of it all? Yeah, it's it's obviously a really tricky procedure to get right, and it's a really anxious time for the drivers as well. So they go through the patches of form with their starts. Yeah. And Shane, as much winning as he's doing, he's not immune from all that. I don't think it's really a car thing when you look at, um, you know, even the Triple Eight customer cars have been getting pretty good starts. So. The interesting thing, though, for me with Shane is his starting technique is actually quite unique. So the others all use the line lock button on the steering wheel. And you see on the onboards, they create the brake pressure with the pedal and then they can hold it with the button. And that means they can they can load the car with the clutch and the throttle against the, the line locker and just release the button. 
But with Shane, he's got actually a little handbrake lever on the transmission tunnel. I think he's the only one that does it this yeah. way. So it's still hydraulic, but he loads it up against that and then he can ease it off. So rather than it being binary with a button, he can actually sort of modulate. Yeah. So I think he's done that for a little while. And I'm not saying it's the reason for his bad starts, but it's an extra element that he uses. And the only one in the sort of recent past that I know has traditionally used that is Garth Tander. So it was interesting to see that Garth was out there at QR. Like, obviously, he was there for the test day anyway, but um, helping him a little bit with the starts and just trying to get that procedure down. Yeah, because it's an odd one because if you look at, like, his skill set, you know, he has incredible throttle control, fantastic reactions. He should be an amazing starter. But, yeah, it just doesn't always seem to come together. And we've seen Deep City's starting form in the past. It's not even something that's necessarily all that new. So there must be a human element to it. And it is one of those things that, as you mentioned, and it's a really good point, you you focus in on it. It's something that there is a real human element to it. And if it starts to go wrong once, the next time you sit on the grid, you think, geez, I hope it doesn't go wrong again. And it can snowball yeah, in that way for sure. Yeah. And I remember back in um, – in 2018, like Shane was also having a, a real rough run with starts and I was talking to Mark Dutton about that, the team manager there at um, Red Bull Ampole Racing and he was saying that with these um, with these current cars, like one of the few driver inputs they don't actually have data on is the clutch pressure. Yeah. So when you're trying to problem solve what is going wrong in the starts, there is a little, of a, a little bit of a black spot there that all the other driver inputs are logged, but clutch pressure isn't. Yeah. So you can calculate it back out through math channels and all that sort of nerdy stuff. But um, yeah, it's it's something that um, is the feel of the driver and and a little bit of that, that human element that you just can't uh, see in the data. Fascinating stuff. All righty, let's hand out our Castrol stars of the week. Stefan, who is your star this week? My Castrol star of the week this week is Mick Schumacher for scoring his uh, first F1 points there on the weekend at Silverstone. Yes, there was plenty of attrition in the race, but I still thought it was a great story. Great to see it. I can't imagine the pressure of being Michael's son trying to make it in F1, but then also like being at Haas, Gunter Steiner hasn't held back with some of the criticism after some of Mick's crashes this year. So... Great to see him not only break through for points, but to be uh, fighting to the end there with Max Verstappen. He wasn't just uh, cruising to the checkered flag. Absolutely. I'm going to stick with the uh, with the son of a gun theme and go with Ryan Walkinshaw. If you follow Ryan on Twitter, you'll know he's been on an epic quest to get his lost bag back from Qantas. And uh, there was a mostly happy ending to that as of today. He's back in possession of his bag. It's a little worse for wear, but he's got it. Uh, I think we need to print out an actual like massive Castrol star that he can slap on it. It might make it a bit easier to identify the carousel and so on in the future. I'm sure a certain rival brand won't mind that at all, so we'll uh, we'll get that one sorted for you, Ryan. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe, and review our work wherever you listen to your podcast, and we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport news. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. 
From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 W Racing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.